This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Imagine you're 17, a big fan of music, and an opportunity comes along to go on a reality TV show to win a dream job to be a host on your favourite music-based TV station. One minute, you're standing in a line in your school uniform waiting to audition. Next thing, you're on a flight to Sydney to vie for one of four spots to do just that. Sounds like the best thing ever, doesn't it? Reality TV, even in its developing stages, comes with a price tag though. In this episode, Yana is joined by one of the four participants in Channel V's fresh meat competition from back in the early 2000s. Gabrielle Scorthorne is an absolute delight. Sassy, funny and totally engaging and as smart as a whip. You'll enjoy the walk down memory lane before Instagram influencers, TikTok and even smartphones when nothing felt as good as the quick snap of a flip phone to end a conversation. You'll also gain a greater insight into some of the tactics used to get the right reaction for great TV and how that holds even more currency as we have a constant flurry of reality TV shows to choose from now. The other side of the equation, from the fun challenges and all the drama and us being lightly entertained choosing our heroes and villains, is what's left behind. How even PTSD is a reality for a reality TV star. The conversation just flows. Yana's nearly two decades of experience as a therapist helps set a safe place for the very candid, warts and all conversation to land. You'll meet the remarkable Gabrielle Scorthorn in just a moment on the Curious Life podcast. There's so much I would love to launch into. Even just your career, Gab, is just meaty and juicy and exciting in itself. And now you've taken another turn, almost maybe it's a even a little side pivot from <laughs> theatre work and TV work to being on the other side of, I guess you could call it the microphone, the camera, and being the person interviewing people in your new podcast, Back From Reality. Yes, I've gone on the other side. It's quite nice there. (laughs) It's quite nice. This is interesting. This is my first time being on the other side of a podcast, though. I'm usually you and you are usually me, Yana. Oh, interesting. (laughs) We flipped the tables. I love it. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, it is all about you today. So get comfortable and or maybe uncomfortable would be better. (laughs) So much I want to talk about. So first of all, you've had a NIDA trained experience. So you you trained at NIDA, you've done all these incredible productions, but you also started out at the age of 17 doing a reality show yourself for Channel V called Fresh Meat. Mm. And for those of us that remember, Channel V was the TV channel back in the day for reality shows. That's where about to say Andy G, but Osher Gunsberg <laughs> cut his teeth <laughs> and so many others. So I've loved to kind of launch right in. You were only 17 when you did that show, weren't you? Yeah. And I was one of those 
Ipswich, Queensland. That's where I'm from originally. And I was that 17-year-old girl who ran home every afternoon to watch Channel V after school. MTV was the next one along. So I'd just flip channels back and forward, hoping that they'd play Christine Aguilera. And <laughs> and Bye. so it was it was utterly strange when I saw the advert for the presenter came on and I kind of joked about it with my mates at high school because we'd all we were all cable babies. We were all Foxtel babies and we saw it. And they were all saying, Gab, you should really go. And I think that is so ridiculous, you know, like I'm from Ipswich, Queensland. We're in this tiny little, like, I'm not going to get on. And I was actually on a legal studies excursion. And I was, I think I was at like the Brisbane courts or something. And one of my my best mates just turned to me. She's like, Gab, I really just think that you should go. She'd found the audition. She knew where it was. She's like, look, it's at Westside, it's at Westfield, Chermside. Like, please just go. And I was like, how am I going to get there? We're at this excursion. And Penny just said, call your dad, just call your dad, he'll pick you up. And so I called my dad, I thought it was ridiculous. And I said, Dad, look, um, this might sound strange, but I I need you to come and pick me up from the Brisbane courts and take (laughs) me to a television audition. And I was kind of expecting my dad just to laugh at me. And Bless him, he left work and he came and he had to essentially kidnap me because I wasn't allowed to leave the excursion. So I had to kind of run out the front, jump in the car and head there. And I mean, I don't know if we don't really have anything like it. It's kind of like the original Idol days. There are literally hundreds of people lined up to audition for this thing. I was literally the last person that they saw. I was in my school uniform. I mean... How sick is that? The cool bells were going off. And I auditioned in my school uniform and I just had to kind of talk to camera for three minutes. And I just had so much fun doing it. Like I just had so much fun and left and my dad watched the whole thing from the sidelines and he was like, that cameraman lit up when you came on Gab. I was like, oh, bless you, you little bias man. Then it just, I got a call back. They were kind of, they kept on calling and I was in my final year of schooling. I was in year 12 at the time and it just kept on happening, but I kept on kind of, I'd get through the next round, the next round. And I just kept on thinking, oh, it won't actually happen though. It won't actually happen. And my dad, again, we were in the car and he said to me, Gab, I, I want you to have a really serious think about what you might do if you get this, because I'm quite worried because you're in your final year of school. And I said, like, dad. Again, you beautiful biased man. Don't worry about it. Not going to happen. I'm a little chubby girl from Ipswich. I'm not going to be on the TV. Anyway, like long story short, the very finals, they kind of called my parents and they said, look, just make sure that she's home if she does get selected. Because it was like they were taking the top four to Sydney and you have to kind of drop everything, just go to Sydney and do this television show. And they said, make sure that she's available noon till five on Saturday. And I was available. I had one of my best friends with me. We were at home kind of patiently waiting. Got to 5pm. No, no call. Nothing had kind of come through. And I was kind of thinking, oh, shit, I've got a history exam on Monday. Haven't studied for it because I've just been (laughs) thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to Sydney. And so my one of my, my dear friends who was with me, we just started cram studying. And I saw these lights at the front of our house and I thought oh my gosh my brother's been arrested again or something's <laughs> something's <laughs> happened and then I just heard James Matheson's voice 
and I kind of looked to Liz and my mum and dad ran to the front of the house. I ran to the front of the house and at the door was this massive camera crew. And I just, can you try just for a second to imagine as a 17-year-old girl who has spent years watching this show to see James Matheson at your (laughs) front doorstep in Ipswich, it, you know, after I'd kind of given up all hope of anything happening, it was insane. He came into my house, came into my bedroom. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's a different story today. But... (laughs) But it was just wild and and I can I was 17 but had a little cheeky drink with my parents, had a little bit of champagne. Yeah. And then there was a school dance that I wasn't allowed to go to because I was meant to be cramming for this history exam. They were like, nah, F the history exam, go to the dance. I was like, Mom, I've had a drink. She was like, don't worry about it. Sorry, go. So, yeah, then the next. Sorry, that is such a long story. Oh, my God, I love it. I love your parents. I love this story. I just want to hear everything. Look, went to the school dance and just told everyone, bye, school, I'm going to Sydney to be a star. (laughs) Enjoy the history exam on Monday, dickheads. (laughs) Rude fingers. Yeah, just like, just giving the guns. (laughs) Wow. So, I mean, James Matheson is at your door. Like, mm. at that point, had you taken your makeup off? Were you, like, back in se- school mode? Oh, mate, I was 17. There, there is no makeup. It was a, <laughs> it was a Lancome Juicy Tube if you're lucky, you know. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what makeup was. And can oh. you remember they kind of sat with my parents in the kitchen because I, I was underage. Um, and they were like, okay, she's going to need clothes. She's going to need lots of different outfits because she's going to be on live television every day. We're going to film every day. And bless them, like my parents. And I had to be on a plane the very next day. Oh, my God. I can't imagine what it was like for them. It's not like a rural town, but it's a smaller place, Ipswich. And to kind of have these people from Sydney come in and say, we're going to take your daughter tomorrow, go and spend hundreds of dollars on outfits for her immediately. <laughs> and they just they just did it. Bless them. Like wow. They just did anything yeah everything had you been a performer before that for your dad to get a call at work like come and pick me up and take me to a tv audition I mean had there been any hints that this might have been in your future and this was where you were supposed to be look my family found me hilarious (laughs) (laughs) not really you know I'd done like speech and drama at Steadford's my parents always kind of if I displayed any kind of interest in something, they'd always whack me along to a class. But that's all I, again, it was just more an after-school kind of hobby. But, um, yeah, so actually probably a poor decision on my father's behalf. <laughs> there was no indicators. Brilliant. Um, a brilliant one. <laughs> no indicators that I'd actually be good at it. But wow. blind faith. Unbelievable. So you go and clean out Sports Girl by everything <laughs> off the rack. How Back did you bag. know? How did you know? <laughs> I was 17 months too. <laughs> and then, so what happens? Sort of launched into a whole other world instantly. Yeah, I, I flew down and there was another girl from Brisbane, actually, Maud Garrett, who had gotten into the final two as well. And I can just remember looking at her thinking that she was the prettiest, most glamorous woman I had ever seen. And I was feeling pretty good. I had my sports girl top on and my Sassenbad jeans ready to go. <laughs> but I can remember I was like 
I was just this cute little chubby thing, you know. I was just a little ginge with very prominent <laughs> freckles because I, my skin was not prepared for Queensland and there was this gorgeous, thin, tall, blonde woman and I was like, I'm going to be standing next to her on camera every day. What a joy. But <laughs> And then kind of we landed and Maud, her uncle was Peter Garrett. She was just switched on. She was 21 and she, or 22, and she just knew what to do. She knew as soon as we landed, she was like, where's the producer? Great, there you are. She was incredible. She just knew the showbiz world a little bit better than Ipswich Gabby did. And (laughs) she really kind of, I just clung to her because I was quite terrified and we we landed. They took us to our our Sydney apartment where we were going to stay. 17 years old, one of the first drinks they put in my hand was champagne. I thought, this would be a good couple of months. (laughs) And in those days, there was no such thing as like a, well, I think there was, but not at Channel V. There wasn't a chaperone or I left my grammar school to go and do this. I left my spot in year 12. They didn't have tutors or anything like that. I was just kind of, yeah, put amongst it, heading out to clubs. And (laughs) there wasn't really much of a duty of care. I don't, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like my 17-year-old dream come true, but I can imagine there would have been times that it might have been scary and you might have felt a little bit out of your depth. But we know that at that age we all just think we're 25 when we're 15 anyway. Were there ever any moments where you were just feeling a little bit out of your depth? The first day of live television, when people actually watched television as well, I couldn't quite compute that there were hundreds of thousands of people watching you. And luckily, I think because I was 17, I just, I thought I was pretty great anyway. <laughs> you know, when you're 17 and you secretly think, maybe I am a supermodel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, not much evidence to suggest that I am, but maybe that weird <laughs> self-confidence. So, but that first day of kind of realising, wow, I'm going to be in front of hundreds of thousands of people. That was a bit scary and and also I had I had never tried to get into a club like never that was not my vibe not my high school vibe didn't have a fake idea or anything but all of Mm -hmm. a sudden because I'd have to go to these concerts for the job it's a music television presenter job so you'd go to these concerts you'd interview these rock stars and they'd say hey come to my concert tonight then come to the after party and first time I walked into a club I was terrified I was like I'm gonna get the police I'm gonna get arrested but after the first couple of times I slid into it quite naturally. Were there any acts that you saw that you were totally starstruck by? There was a band called Alexis on Fire very big in the screamo scene which I was quite (laughs) into as a teen and my best friend and I were obsessed with them and they told us on the Wednesday night that I would be interviewing them I had their poster in my room. I like, I mean, that was, and I, I just called up my best friend. I said, I am interviewing Alexis on fire Friday. I think that you should fly down. So my best friend flew down <sighs> and yeah, I interviewed them. They invited us to the concert, invited us to the after party. Me and my best friend invited us to their hotel room, which, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I mean, I look at the, at the time I was like, oh my God, at the time, Wow, I look back on that now, weird as. We were 17 years old. They were like in their 30s um, <laughs> oh and they were like serenading us on a couch. 
that that was a real weird moment actually that got super weird because there's just heaps of drugs around and I think that they all had partners but they had invited like these underage girls to their place super weird super weird super weird but also kind of not that unexpected in I guess in the industry you know you hear stories like that all the time and worse sometimes so maybe it was lucky that it wasn't worse than it was yeah still kind of trapped in a room with a 30 year old kind of pressuring (laughs) you romantically but yes it could have been yeah worse than it was worse than it was indeed I don't think I would have been at risk with my childhood posters on the wall of Hanson had I been invited back to their hotel room after a gig. I also had them on my wall. I was I had a very diverse bedroom wall. <laughs> oh, I love it. Wow. And like did you get much preparation time? You've gone from year 12 student to suddenly interviewing professional musicians and doing it on live TV. Like, was there much training involved? No, not at all, really, which I think is the vibe of Channel V anyway. It's always been that kind of just raw, fresh, had always been, RIP, that raw kind of fresh thing. So, no, literally just plucked out, yeah, told on the Saturday night, on camera on the Monday, ready ready to go. And I heard you in one of your podcasts, actually, talking about how sometimes you'd wake up and there'd be a camera in your face. Were you filmed kind of round the clock for the reality show itself? Yeah, so it it was a bit of a, I don't think they had much of a plan with it. So we were meant to do, we had like live studio shows where we'd interview bands and kind of host our own shows and stuff. And then we had challenges throughout the week of having to kind of go to this event and broadcast from there but then also yeah sometimes you just wake up and there would be a cameraman there and it's not like we did masters or anything but they'd just be filming because they're like hey we're gonna go do this challenge today yeah I mean you you get used to it pretty quickly but it is strange it's still yeah yeah it's a completely different world Like most of us, you may have thought, well, they signed up for reality TV. Surely they were warned about what they were getting into. They just want to be a star with heaps of Instagram followers. Well, next you'll hear from Gabrielle what she has found out from insiders and former stars and exactly what they did and didn't know and how that probably has more to do with some decisions that are made on reality TV. Were there any supports? At all. I know you say there weren't chaperones, but was there anyone checking in with you psychologically at that point? No, not not as kind of structured as that. We had one producer in particular that I remember kind of being our, our main kind of touch point and mm-hmm. she was wonderful from what I remember and, and a fellow redhead. So I immediately <laughs> felt at kin with her. But no, no one no one else. We had a weird marketing guy who told me that I must wear my cheetah print scarf every time I'm on camera. But that was the only thing. <laughs> was that for good luck or he just really liked it on you? He was like, that's your thing now. You are that cheetah print scarf and the cheetah print scarf is you. That's who you are now. This is a really great niche item for you, okay? Wear it always. <laughs> I, just, I was like, okay. I got it from St Vinnie's for like 50 cents, but absolutely. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my 
God. And so if you're looking at behind the scenes crew and everything, we see a product where we just see the person on screen and we all know that there's a whole lot that goes on behind the scenes. We know that current reality TV shows, the producers now have a very big role in terms of storyline and Mm. pushing agendas. Was there any of that going on for you? I can't completely remember there was another boy on there who was like my age and we got on really well maybe I had like a little kind of schoolgirl crush on him but I can remember that they would kind of press at that they would kind of be like oh so are you he with Alex and I, I think like a little tabloid kind of thing came out maybe in like a pretty c grade like magazine or something asking our Gab and Alex together so that was a bit kind of They'd always ask me about that. I can remember one time I was doing a challenge and it was in the very finals. So it was when in the grand final when it was just me and um, the other guy left and they asked me like five different times, why do you think you're a little bit better than Steve? And I'd been very diplomatic at the beginning and then I was doing something while I was in a kitchen. We were filming something in a kitchen. I think I was over a frying pan and she just kind of said it a slightly different way and I just fell into the trap. And I started to say, well, I think maybe I'm probably a bit better at this. I feel like rule 101 on a reality television show, never talk about why you're better than someone else. That will yeah. never come across well. It never comes across well. And yeah. and like talking to my guests about, did the producers ever kind of, did you say something you regret? Did they, that I, I go, oh, and that moment is the moment that I majorly regret saying that. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. There's always talk, and this is something that I've talked about with a couple of guests that I've interviewed from The Bachelor and shows like that, where the big question around editing comes into play. Yeah. And for the most part, most people will just own what they've said and say, you know what, I said it. Maybe they pieced it together in a way that made it look worse, but I said what I said. Mm. Or that, like in your experience, the producers really kind of draw it out of you you keep going till they get that but the thing that's so interesting to me about reality tv is we know all of this stuff as viewers we know there's producer input we know there's question marks about editing and all of that but we still lap it up and can't stop watching like what is that and get drawn into the drama I come across this a lot in my show when I'll be talking to someone and they always say that and I wonder if they have been brainwashed by their aftercare (laughs) program or something because they always say you know at the end of the day I said what I said honestly if you listen to the entire 20 episodes or something that we've done every reality television star says the same thing but from what I know talking to producers as well if someone is withheld water If someone is put in front of lights and cameras for four hours and they know, okay, if I just say what this producer wants me to say, I will be wrapped in an hour or I can Mm. sit here for four hours more and just end up at the same point. Did you really say what you said? Like there are Mm. circumstances. And also, I mean, in the case of The Bachelor and definitely maths, there Mm. are sound bites that don't even sound like a human. They are so pieced together. It's like, I went to the shop (laughs) so terribly. And can I, I want to take this, this time to publicly thank the editor on The Bachelor, whoever it is this year, 
they are having a great time and I really <laughs> respect what they are doing. They are having so much fun with it. But yeah. it's wild. It's like, and I think what must be really confronting, because I never had, on my reality show, they were never kind of drastically messing with what I was saying. I was mm. a pliable 17-year-old girl. They could get me to say pretty much anything they wanted. <laughs> but I think it must be terribly confronting for someone to have to watch that back. And no one's actually been, I don't think I've had a guest that's kind of, oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Michelle was very forward with that. But it must be very strange watching yourself back going, I didn't say that. Mm. I didn't say that. And I think that would really mess with your perception of what reality is. You'd start to doubt yourself. of like, oh, well, did I say that? Maybe I did. You know, it's almost like a deep mm. fake kind of happening before you. Yes, absolutely. I think I read somewhere or heard someone talking about how if you don't see their lips actually moving and it's just a sound bite playing over some vision, you can almost 100% of the time be sure that that's been tampered with in these kinds of shows. Of course. Or even if when that, that's, I've not thought of it like that, but of course. <laughs> and they'll often like cut away to a footage and mm. then come back to the, mm. Yep. Yeah. That's a good one. It's interesting with maths. I feel like that's the most, well, at least it's the show in Australia that seems to have had the most interference. Mm. It started off more genuine, it felt. Mm. And I think the last few, like I actually stopped watching the last season because it just felt so contrived and overproduced. And I just thought if I'm going to watch something that's completely made up, I'm going to watch some fiction. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good example. On the show, we spoke to Bella Frizzer, who was in, I think, one of the very first, mm. the first or second seasons. And yeah. she has this lovely kind of recollection of it as being like, oh, it was such fun, you know, a bit of fun, mm. quite light. And yeah. then we spoke to someone who must have done it just last year. And yeah. I mean, it's torture porn, you know, it's like the psychological games that they're playing on that show. And I have to say, when I was interviewing Michelle from last year's season, I was really sceptical of what she was saying. I have to admit, and and I think that's really terrible. But in the moment, I was thinking, oh, no, surely they couldn't have, couldn't have done that to you. That is, that's, that's a bit weird. Mm. And then when I started to kind of, you know, because I've done my research before the interview, But then afterwards, I was kind of looking up stories that she'd said, and it's absolutely corroborated from a bunch of other contestants kind of saying, yes, that language was used. Yes, that lack of, it's kind of wild. And we were talking to the psychologist who does pretty much every single Australian television reality show that you see. He Mm -hmm. develops the aftercare programs and does all of the check-ins with, but he, he said, maths has never reached out to me. And they really? never will because they are not interested <laughs> in, wow. in um yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting. Mm. Is it that they don't want to reveal what's really happening in production? Or do they not have any sense of duty of care? I mean, surely there's some legal Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean I think they, they do, but from talking to the lady that we spoke to on last year's season, she was saying yeah, but it's with someone who just, it's a completely biased therapist. Apparently, Well, they feel, they feel that mm. it's not actually safe and secure to talk to this person. Yeah. And I think a few of them have 
legal action kind of taking place. So maybe they don't feel comfortable talking to the therapist if they have pending legal action as well. Maybe there's mm-hmm. a there's a conflict there. The number one rule of therapy is you have to feel safe. Yeah. And otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah. I think I that's mean, totally true. Yeah. And, and I think if you've put yourself out there, we always hear, and I'm probably guilty of making this judgment too, that you expect the people that have gone on reality TV know what they're getting themselves into mm. and they quote unquote deserve whatever is happening to them publicly after that. But it's not true because you obviously can't predict the venom that comes with social media and trolling and all of that and you also can't predict how you're going to be portrayed and what's going to be in the show and what's not. I was talking to an anonymous producer on one of the episodes and Mm -hmm. they were saying our contracts are watertight. They are signing their lives away. They can say anything and we can use it. I read that a lot. Well, they knew what they were getting themselves into. I've seen a fire on television. I've got no idea what it feels like. (laughs) I've seen people in burning buildings, don't know what it's like until I'm there. And I think, you know, especially in my case, I can't remember if they warned me about social media, people knowing me when I went places, but also you kind of, you can't see any of that. And in the specific example of maths, I genuinely believed in the, in the second interview that I had, that that woman was there to find love. I genuinely, I've got a bullshit radar and I re, she was very genuinely looking for love. And so yeah. when you have a purpose, you can forget about the warning signs and mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the yucky side of reality TV is that sense of preying on the vulnerable and people that are really being genuine and, and putting their heart on the line or putting themselves out there and exposing themselves and then that being used in a way that they had no intention of doing. Yeah, and I think it also like differs from, totally varies from show to show and I should kind of also make clear that I think maths is an entity of its own and is is very different. I've spoken to producers who say, no, I don't want really, really vulnerable people because that's not good television. Actually, Mm. you need a really good balance of confidence and a level of vulnerability that allows for accessibility with audiences. But I talk to a producer and they talk to me and I go, yeah, that sounds totally reasonable. Yes, I believe (laughs) you. And then I'll kind of, I'll watch one of their shows and I'll go, oh, (laughs) (laughs) oh, there's a little disconnect here, I think. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, they have a job as well and that's to make good television and I really do believe that they try to warn contestants as much as they can about the downfalls of what's going to happen to them but I also know that when someone when someone wants to do something they can put blinkers on and they can ignore all of those warnings as well. Yeah and I think we're living in a time now where with all this kind of insta fame everybody's so many people are really trying to just be famous Mm. and And they're not really that interested in how or why that happens. And they all want to sell flat tummy tea and teeth whitening and uh, see that as a career aspiration. Mm. A lot of these people, I'm making a very broad generalisation, obviously, 
I wonder if there is also now a new breed of people who just want to be on TV and don't care really what comes out of it. Absolutely. The interview with the anonymous producer that I had, they were saying, look, a lot of the time I'm holding someone back. They were kind of talking about The Bachelor and they were saying these contestants get to the party and they know what they need to do for camera time. So actually the the role of the producer has almost, it's changed now into how can I regain control of this situation? Because Mm. you have people coming in who are so social savvy who so know how something will read and it's actually getting harder and harder to find that level of accessibility because if someone's coming in and they've got a jewellery line and their brand is like Byron Bay hippie jewellery, it's like, well, I'm going to be that character the entire time because that's my Mm. brand. I think it's, yeah, it's harder for the producers because Kim Kardashian had a sex tape, you know, (laughs) and she is now one of the most powerful women in the world. And I don't mean that from, I really don't mean that from a place of shade. I mean, fame and power has kind of become almost democratised. Well, it's democratised as a Facebook algorithm can be, Um, (laughs) you know. But, yeah, sorry, tangent. But it's not a tangent at all because Kim and Paris, they were the original reality stars. Yeah. And they launched from sex tape. Yeah. And you're right. Like there's no more famous a family than the Kardashian-Jenner clan. And very smart businesswomen. Clearly very, very smart businesswomen with what they've done. But I think it, yeah, I mean social media is just it's a monster this is someone's full-time occupation and so yeah people are going on these reality television shows making a very hedged bet of I go in here with 75,000 followers I leave here the girls from The Bachelor kind of come out with maybe 700,000 more followers afterwards it's and then that's when the real job starts so Mm. life after reality television now it's like how much how much can I capitalise on this? I've got a, I've got a year window until the next lot of contestants go in. How much tummy slimming tea can I move, you know? <laughs> yeah. How many Daily Mail pieces can I get in? <laughs> I proudly yeah. have a few now myself. Oh, just, look at you. Yeah, I know. I just put them on the wall every time, <laughs> every time. Daily Mail are our, our biggest fans, I think. They are avid listeners. Wonderful. <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> Gabrielle shares how another audition took her on a different path and what happened when those old feelings and anxiety reared its ugly head again. Yana, being a therapist, obviously has empathy, but a similar experience in training in the arts leads to the conversation really opening up. Just a moment on the Curious Life podcast. interesting to me when I think about your career because in reality you've had a very serious professional career you started in reality tv but it's absolutely nothing like what the reality stars of today are like Mm. and for you coming out of fresh meat was that obviously you I would imagine you were thinking about using that to continue a media career a performing career and at that time probably less so about endorsements and fame in the same way do you Mm. you remember where your head was at at that time it was not good yeah I had such an opportunity to kind of go around and say okay well I 
I didn't get this job, but I, I could have approached other television channels. But I was just, I'd never had my heart broken before. I, and this was absolutely my first heartbreak. And I was 17 years old. I felt so embarrassed afterwards. I felt so embarrassed because I got kicked. They put me on a plane, I think, like the very, the very next day, absolutely the very next day, wow. you know, kicked me out of the apartment, got me on the plane, got me home. And I just, I can remember going home and I'm back in my room in Ipswich and there's no cameras there. There's no, there's no free clothes or free tickets or free meals <laughs> back home. I had yeah. to they were saying, well, you'll need to repeat your 12. And I just thought, I can't do that. Like, I, I cannot do that. I will just do whatever assessments you need me to do because I'm, I'm just getting this done. I'd missed maybe, you know, three months of school or something, but it was the QCS and it was the main test. But I just, yeah, went back. And really, I just utterly fell apart, I think, afterwards. Mm. Utterly fell apart. We hear about that a lot, often that sort of, come down after being on such a high and that often there is no safety net and there is no aftercare that's meaningful and that actually helps you move through an experience that's completely unique and only one or two other people in the world have been through Mm. with you. So how did you take care of yourself? What was your aftercare program for yourself like? Well, yeah, I should... uh... There was no aftercare whatsoever from the station. And I, you know, I I feel for, I wonder what it would have been like for my parents because they'd had these people come to them and say, we're going to look after your daughter, don't worry about it. And then I came home an absolute basket case. Like, mm-hmm. like oh, that's an awful term. But I came home very unwell, uh, you know, put in hospital, bunch of, Things and it must have been so scary for my parents. Mm. I've not actually really spoken to them about it to see how they feel about it. Look, the really lucky kind of thing is in order to get my place back at school and to continue year 12 with my year, the school had said, look, she'll need to get a medical certificate. Kind of talking about post traumatic stress, she'll need to, because to, we'll need to get a special consideration for her tests and for the Queensland Education Board and and so that was really lucky because I got to use it as a shield. We didn't, I'd never been to a counsellor or a therapist before. And it, it sounds weird, but, you know, in 2000, whatever it was, it wasn't, you didn't have a therapist. Well, not in Queensland anyway. It yeah. wasn't pretty normal for someone to go and have counselling. But mm. So I got to use that as a shield. And my parents also got to use that as a shield of like, everything's fine. You just have to do this in order to continue your education. Mm. You know, you're not sick, you're fine. Everything's fine. You just, we, this is a box that needs to be ticked. And so luckily, my beautiful supportive parents just got me great doctors and then put on medication to kind of help me try to complete year 12. But I think hospitalised twice, and yeah, just, I'd never had a panic attack beforehand and, you know, started waking up in the middle of the night, sweating. And, and I think it just, I've never, I'd never like publicly failed that, that, mm-hmm. that big and just had my heart broken and I'd never kind of sit, lived, lived the high life and then kind of come back to a great life, but one that was very different. 
that is a huge change in even just in your in your mind you go from normal high school gab to living the rock star lifestyle fast pace killing it on tv people know you everything you're hanging out with rock stars in hotel rooms and then bang it's over yeah. for anyone that kind of a an immediate grind to a halt would be shattering mm. so for a 17 year old to be expected to just kind of get on with life I completely understand why the wheels fell off because you can't just slam on the brakes and jump off and that's it yeah massive yeah and I mean if I didn't have parents like I have I'm incredibly privileged with my family it could have actually been pretty diabolical I mean it already was diabolical mm. It's just because I have parents who really give a shit and they were like, oh, Gabrielle's unconscious in her bedroom. Let's get her to a hospital, you know. <laughs> but if you don't have that, what, yeah, what could, have, what could have happened? And as you say, the stigma around mental health and even situational trauma, post-traumatic stress, anything like that, it's so commonly talked about now and the stigma is still there a little bit for a lot of people, but it's very much out in the open and everyone talks about mental health awareness but people wouldn't have known necessarily how to even approach it with you like I can't imagine Mm. that your friends would have known how to help you absolutely not and again I had a a really beautiful group of high school friends really Mm. close group the girls who encouraged me to go on the show and it must have been incredibly strange for them as well, to kind of see this completely different person come back. When anybody's unwell around us, we always find ways to feel guilty about it and make it about us. I wonder about your poor friend that said, you've got to go and do this, ring your dad. (laughs) Was she ever talking to you about it or did she continue to be there for you? Yeah, they all did. But I I don't think... I mean, hopefully, I don't think she'd made that connection. And also, I, I've never thought of it like that either. No. Yeah. It's a tricky one. You know, I work with um, teenagers as a therapist. And You're so amazing. often, they'll come to me and ask about how to help a friend who's really unwell or mm. has stuff going on. And I guess the main problem we all have is when we see someone who's not doing well, we feel like we have to fix it for them and mm. we have to have the answers, but we know that no one else can fix it for us. It's just something that's happening. We need to get professional help or we need to just work through it ourselves. But just having people be there the way that your friends were and your parents were probably did help to carry you through some of those harder times. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a beautiful chapter in Caitlin Moran's book, How to Build a Woman, but her daughter is going through like a massive kind of mental breakdown and the previous chapter, she's just trying to fix it. She's trying to fix the eating disorder she's trying to fix and then towards the end of the book she says, oh, my gosh, I should have just said I'll just be here the entire time. I will just be here and I can't, I know that I can't help but I'll just be here. And while my my parents did not release a, uh, an 18-chapter book and have, like, the <laughs> lovely part in the book where they can say that, that's just, I think, exactly what they did. And being there is just the, the thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yep, just being there. Whatever it is, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so how long do you think it took you to move through all of that? When did you start feeling like yourself again? I got distracted pretty quick. About a year afterwards, less than a year afterwards, my my mum said to me, Nida's auditioning. And I said, Mum, don't be ridiculous. You know, thousands of people audition for that. I'm not going to. And she said, well, thousands of people audition for Channel V2, Gab. And you got in. So I think that I should book you an audition slot. And so. Wow, go mum. Yeah, I know. She's all right. And <sighs> And she was like, look, go to the audition. I've got the morning session. And then when you get kicked off, we'll go shopping in the afternoon. And I thought, pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. I'll go <laughs> do a monologue, get kicked off, go shopping in the afternoon. Brilliant. Kind of went to the audition and I came out and I was like, mum, they want me to bloody stay in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> can't go shopping. I was devastated. So because I, I got into NIDA pretty quick afterwards, that soothed the failing feeling because I was like, no, nah, see, I've done something else. So that kind of just numbed that failing feeling for a bit. And NIDA is, when I went anyway, a decade ago now, it's eight in the morning till eight at night with all the homework wow. and, and stuff. It's it's pretty, pretty rigorous routine so I was so distracted by that it wasn't yeah really and it was quite delayed actually my I felt the immediate kind of heartbreak effects straight after but I only really started feeling the true force of the mental health aspects maybe five years afterwards wow yeah that's so interesting these are the conversations that need to be had because everyone sort of thinks like, oh, well, she looks great. Everything's going well for her. She's over it. Everything's good. But it's never the way it goes, is it? It's that thing, isn't it, of when you play a tape over and over and over, it becomes white noise, but it's still always there. And then it actually wasn't until about I started having these severe performance anxiety attacks, pretty I've spoken about this really briefly, actually, because I, I did an interview with a girlfriend of mine. And it's funny, you know how you were saying back then we didn't talk about mental health. I think still in performance today, you don't talk about anxiety. You don't talk about performance anxiety because, mm. well, performers just don't because it makes other performers feel uncomfortable. It's it's not good for your career either to talk about because it comes across as a liability and I, I was talking to a friend of mine on the show who is a, a very skilled performer, quite quite famous, and she was. we started talking about performance anxiety and that actually it felt revolutionary, you know, mm. that we were talking about that as, as working actors. But I think it's probably very much related to, yeah, my initial experience, that idea of success and failure when I failed so publicly in front of people at 17 I think that that has just that's never left me I don't think that it's left me now and I think it will take a really long time I can manage it better now but I think it'll take a really long time to leave completely that's so interesting because I was watching that documentary the show must go on about mental health in the entertainment industry and how exactly like you're talking about it doesn't get talked about And imagining you at NIDA and you've just come through this insane experience, then you've had a bit of a breakdown and things have been really hard again and then you're thrust into this more than full-time study and performance school. 
I understand a tiny bit. I studied musical theatre at the National Drama School in Melbourne. Yeah. That was only three or four days a week for a year. But the pressure to be on and to be competing almost with your peers in classes, there were always the kids that would just seem like they were naturally just so talented and amazing and or their bodies were just beautiful or they were just Mm. all the things and comparison we know is the worst thing ever but we all do it we can't help it like to be in that situation for yourself the best drama school in the country competing for a real career in the arts I don't know like how do you shelve all of that anxiety how does it not present every day or in the lead up to performances or classes The beautiful thing I think about going to drama school and especially the way that female roles are written is that they always want you to cry. I had a Mm. lot of emotion ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) I had a backlog of tears that were ready. (laughs) Female roles are always, you're always a victim. I can play 55 shades of victim. (laughs) So it it worked out pretty well because I just got to have a lot of feelings. So, yeah, of course, you get all of that comparison stuff and also I'm a especially you know I went when I was 18 which I was the youngest person in the year there were a few other 18 year olds with me as well but so immature there were people I'd gotten in on my first go I didn't really understand what NIDA was either I knew that it was the best drama school in the country but I didn't actually understand the sacrifice that some people had made we had people in our year who had auditioned five times And so I must have come across as such a fuckwit. Like, (laughs) just kind of walked in, had a good time, did a bit of crying, went home. Um, Yeah, yeah, but the teachers there were so wonderful and patient with me. What a knob. (laughs) I mean, it obviously worked for you because all the reviews about you and anyone listening, just, just Google Gab's whole name and there's like glowing review after glowing review about your emotive performances and so I'm wondering can you look back on that experience and that time when you went through such a sort of dark emotional time as almost having a purpose that you can now use that in your work and use it so well yes and no like you know that 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 bank up of tears they're gone they're gone <laughs> now but uh i'm really happy uh oh, gross <laughs> i i think it is good as i said i've never been heartbroken and mm-hmm. i yeah i do think it's really good to have a heartbreak in your life because mm. there's going to be many more plenty more yeah and so yeah maybe it was a crash course in how to kind of put yourself back together again or just withstand it i don't yeah i don't know you just got to withstand it and then wait until it goes so you can stand up again, I think. I probably never would have auditioned for NIDA had mm. I not have done Channel V because it literally, it was my mum's logic of, well, lots of people auditioned for that and you got through. I think it gave me a lot of confidence to kind of go, oh, maybe I'm a little bit different. Yeah, maybe I have a shot. Yeah, I, I everything happens for a reason. Such a gross sentence, isn't it? Yeah. Such a, such a wanky one. Yeah. Um, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as they say, everything that you're doing, everything that you go through gets you to where you are today. So in that sense, I suppose, it served its purpose. Yes. <laughs> I guess the big question is, though, now that you're doing this podcast and delving into the after effects of reality TV, 
what goes on in front and behind the camera. The big question for you is, would you ever do reality TV again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I've become obsessed with Survivor. (laughs) Like, I love reality television. Sorry, I know that maybe it comes across... (laughs) Like I don't. That the entire reason why I started the podcast is because I love it. So I'm. I almost need to just make sure that I need to make myself feel better about watching so much reality television. <laughs> I do know the other side of it, but yeah, I am really heartened to hear a lot of people's stories as well. Lots of people say mm. it's, it's one of the best things I've done. I had a great time, and yes, yeah, so I badly want to go on Survivor. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have to use your your podcast connections and get in with one of the producers. Absolutely. And I will. <laughs> I'm that shameless. I'll do it. Well, until you get on to Survivor, what is coming up next for you? I mean, you're in hotel quarantine after being in London for most of this year. What's next? I've got a few things coming up, which is so nice to say after a lockdown period of... <laughs> six nine months I'm doing a one woman show in Sydney this is a show that I've done a few times in London it's had a couple of seasons in London thanks to the Arts Council England and so I'm doing it here in Sydney uh, at the 505 theatre that's a scoop Mm. I promised someone else that I was going to scoop it to them (laughs) but that's that's for you my love (laughs) that's that's for you my love oh thank you I feel honoured that's in January And then Arts Council England, uh, who commission the podcast, they are also commissioning me to write a a theatre show about reality television. Yeah, so we've got a development in London, hopefully kind of around July next year. So, Mm. yeah, I'm writing... I'm writing that. Wow, how exciting. Yeah. So I guess you are intellectualising your reality obsession and turning it into a career. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's worked out well. (laughs) I love it. So does that mean you'll be back and forth between Australia and London? Look, I mean, who knows right now? I'm in Australia for the next six months or so but then yeah heading heading back to England for some work there where can people find you and listen to your podcast everywhere yes back from reality it's on I am eyeballing my husband producer who is sitting opposite me Apple <laughs> podcasts and all podcast providers did that sound weird because I was like mouthing it along with him <laughs> No, very natural. (laughs) And if people want to get in touch with you on socials, you on Insta and all of that. Yes, come and say hello to me at G-J-O-S-C-A, G-Joska. How weird is that? Interesting. On Instagram, yeah, get in touch. Excellent. Well, I will put the links in the show notes so people can click through with ease and I highly recommend listening to Gab's podcast because I've binged a few episodes and clearly it's right up my alley and highly recommend it. I particularly enjoyed the Jess Hardy episode because I was a big Jess and Marty fan myself. Oh wasn't she just to die for? This is weird. Can I make a recommendation for you? Yes please. (laughs) My own podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen to the Chloe Zool episode because she's a dear friend of mine and she agreed to do yeah, but she we really talk about the mental health aspects of it quite in depth. And she's just been cast in Hamilton. She's just <gasps> been cast as Eliza in Hamilton. And it is just Whoa. a perfect happy ending to that podcast to have that knowledge that she is <sighs> not only kicking girls, she's literally just smashing, just like oh. riding the football stadium and smashing the girls. <laughs> Wow, that is amazing. All right, I will take that recommendation and run with it. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming. I mean, well, thank you for allowing me into your hotel room and for sharing so much of your story and your thoughts. It's been such a joy chatting with you. I'd love to get to Sydney and see you on stage. So fingers crossed that that can happen. You let me know when you're here and I'll I'll hook you up with some tickets, all right? That's on me. (sighs) Oh, (laughs) And that is on the record. We have got that on the record. We're going to hold you to that. (laughs) It's been so much fun. I just want to keep hanging out. Oh, and we will when you come and see the show in Sydney. Brilliant. (laughs) Again, we're still recording, Gab. Oh, oh, okay. I got you you on this. I've got you. for listening we would love it if you left us a rating for this episode and catch up with yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on instagram and facebook at the curious life podcast